welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people. The whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! Galatians chapter 6 from the Apostle Paul. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here this morning. And on this beautiful day here in Collingswood, would we join with creation to praise you and along with your people around the world, receive your word now. Give us, O Lord, your spirit of illumination that we would understand, be changed, be challenged, be molded, be comforted, be confirmed in the grace of Jesus that truly is the hope of the world. Jesus, thank you for your great sacrifice for us on the cross. Would we be full of the dynamic of Jesus crucified and resurrected for us and for our salvation? Even here, even now, we pray, meet us in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. For a number of years, when I was growing up in middle school and high school, I played AAU basketball. That's travel basketball, so during the summers, go to lots of different places. Here and there, I grew up in suburban New Orleans, sometimes within the state of Louisiana, sometimes more broadly. You might wonder, did I get a lot of playing time on those travel basketball teams? I won't tell you, but if it's any clue, my nickname on that basketball team was Mascot. That's who I was on the travel basketball team. And here's another contributing factor as to why my nickname on that team may have been Mascot over the years. It's because year after year after year in Kenner, Louisiana, I was the only white kid on these basketball teams that would travel to all of these different places. And those experiences have stayed with me because it gave me a window in to racial realities that for me in my suburban existence, I otherwise would not have experienced. So there I was one Friday night in Shreveport, Louisiana. Shreveport, home of, I actually have no idea what Shreveport is the home of. It's not my favorite town. But there we were in Shreveport. We pulled in in the afternoon, played a basketball game that night. And then we went to the hotel, like a Motel 6 or a Best Western or something. It was four kids to a room. And I was getting ready for bed. I was in the bathroom sink area 
turned on the water for me to brush my teeth. And there was another kid, Brandon, who was also in that space, turned off the water. And I thought, oh, wait, hold on. Let me turn the water back on. I'm brushing my teeth. But then he turned off the water again. That was the second time. And then I started to tune in a little bit and turned on the water again. But then Brandon turned it off. I said, hey, uh, Brandon, I'm just trying to uh, brush my teeth here, if that's okay. And Brandon said, yeah, that's not going to happen. You don't get water. And so I started to put some pieces together. I looked across the room to the other two teammates that were in that space, and they were doing their best to very intently not look at me. So there it was me and Brandon at the sink. I said, so I can't have water. Is that what I'm hearing? And he said, yes. And I said, for the whole weekend. And he said, yes, you don't get water. And I said, so you're doing this basically to be mean. And he said, basically, yeah. So that's what happened. It was a no water weekend for me in Shreveport, Louisiana. And luckily, I didn't get any minutes or playing time, so it wasn't as stinky as I could have been otherwise. I didn't protest over that weekend about what happened in the hotel room, but I was processing. So I went back home from Shreveport, talked to my parents about it, and asked them, what should I do? Should I fight back one way or another? Should I try to get even? And my parents' advice to me was full of wisdom. It was full of empathy. They said, you know what, Jim? Next basketball tournament, why don't we ask your coach for some different roommates when you're in the hotel? But besides that, let it go. Let it go. And this is what my parents said to me. You don't know everything that Brandon's experienced. And I think they were right. And it was that weekend, that time in my life as a middle schooler or early high schooler, when I began for the first time to think systemically about racism and systemic injustice. My wheels were turning, and I thought to myself, what must my teammate, and I thought my friend, Brandon, have endured, have experienced, by way of racist things done against him, things overtly done at him and to him, and other things that he absorbed, such that something would have turned or snapped in that hotel room that night towards me. So I was thinking. Later that same season, we were in a different part of Louisiana, Alexandria, Louisiana. The official motto of Alexandria, Louisiana is kind of like Shreveport. That's their official motto. It's on the sign as you drive through town. And that time, we played a midday Saturday, a noon basketball game. We needed to have lunch afterwards. And so we went to a little cafe in Alexandria, Louisiana. It was mid-afternoon, not a whole lot of people there. Went in, one of those little southern cafes, sweet tea and pecan pie, all around. Saw the placard, please wait to be seated. And so we waited. And we waited, and we waited, and we waited. Nothing happened. Then finally, a family came in, not connected with us, a white family. Then a hostess came out and said, yep, go ahead, take your seats over here, and boys, you can sit down over there. 
placemats, menus, were brought to this family. They gave drink order, drink order came, they gave food order, appetizers started to come, and nobody came to our tables. And it dawned on us around the same time, all of the kids, this is actually happening. We are not being served. So quietly, peacefully, we got up, left the seats, left the tables, went back out. On the way out, one of the servers told me, honey, if you stay here, we'll give you whatever you want to eat. I went out with the team. And there we were in the parking lot, and this was the early 90s, solidly in the boys shouldn't cry era. You had all these teenagers weeping. And one of my teammates told me, Jim, I'm sorry you had to face that. And I told my teammate, no, I'm sorry that you had to face that. Like I said, those experiences have stayed with me. And one of my reflection points on what happened in the cafe was this. Could I have done more? Could I have done more? Was there an extra step that I could have taken? It was a no-brainer for, for, for me to leave the restaurant. It didn't particularly take any courage or heroism on my part just to exit with my team. But I thought to myself, what if, and this was years later, what if I had run it up the ladder a little bit, back in my own spheres and my own circles, whether me or my parents, my school or social connections? I knew plenty of lawyers. I knew plenty of government officials. What if I would have gotten in touch with them and through channels asked them to go knocking on the town, on this restaurant in Alexandria and say, hey, you might not know this, but this is the 1990s and there's a restaurant in your town that's not serving people of color. If I had done that, would that have changed anything? I'm not sure. But I think I should have gone back and said, what do I have that I could have leveraged to take some responsibility for what happened? And so here we are, about in the midpoint of this Lenten season, Talking here, it's a season of reflection and repentance in the church around the world and throughout the ages. Here at Liberty Collingswood, talking about racism and systemic injustice, how's it going? How are we growing? What are some extra steps that we might take? And overall, the feedback that we've been getting from the sermon series and other programming that we're doing has been really positive. And I've been hearing you say, this has been really challenging stuff, but it feels good and necessary. We're excited to dig in. And let's do more. Realistically for me, in addition to those things that I feel myself as well, I feel heavy. I feel weight. Sunday after Sunday talking about these things, which has driven me back to the words of the imposition of ashes that I pronounced upon a few people in the room and virtually upon all of us on Ash Wednesday at the beginning of this Lenten season. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. That's what we need for this season that we would continue to grow. And so let's talk in two parts from here, from Galatians chapter 6. Let's take two connected journeys, moving from empathy to repentance, and then moving from remorse to responsibility. Empathy to repentance, 
and remorse to responsibility, beginning with this overarching thing we really double-clicked on it last week, talking about lament. Let lament, as it relates to your life personally, your life generally, racism and systemic injustice specifically, let lament carry you towards empathy as we think about these things. I think that's got to be necessary if we want to do what the Apostle Paul is telling the Galatian church and by proxy us in this passage. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens, and let's do that, including as it relates to racism and these realities that so many of our brothers and sisters have to endure. It's really important, bearing one another's burdens, so much so that the second part of verse 2, Paul says, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. As in, it is so important to Paul, as an inspired author, he perceives Jesus Christ and his call upon the church. You can do a lot of things for Jesus and obeying Jesus. But if you are not bearing one another's burdens, you are not getting it. You're not fulfilling the deep movements of being a follower of Jesus Christ. There's a paradox here that scholars will talk about as we get to the end of the passage, verse 5. For each will have to bear his own load. Each will have to bear his own load. The paradox here is that we need to take care of our own stuff. That's clear in this passage. But part of bearing our own load is bearing others' load as well. And so if you're a majority culture person or a majority culture Christian, if you hear stories, if you hear stats, if you learn about structures as it relates to racism and systemic injustice, is your first response to be defensive, to say, wait a second. I don't think this is true. If it is, and I get it, maybe we need to grow in empathy. I've been talking about this book, Weep With Me, by a pastor named Mark Rogup. He relates the story of a black pastor in this country named Micah Edmondson, and it goes like this. He's talking to a room of people, say a mixed ethnicity room, saying that my wife doesn't let me go to Walmart at night because she's afraid of what might happen to me. And in the midst of that story, he gives some statistics about black people as it relates to brutality and arrest and incarceration. So he tells this whole story, but then he says, did you get snagged on those statistics without hearing the main point that for me and my black family, my wife doesn't let me go to Walmart after dark and we do the same thing with our own kids. Edmondson puts it this way. Empathy means that we take the burdens, the sorrows, the concerns of our neighbors upon ourselves to the point of crying tears with them. We think about their children as if they were our children. We think about their concerns as if they were our personal concerns, and we cry tears with them. That sounds a lot like verse 2, bearing one another's burdens. And there's a place for discussions about polity and policy as it relates to racism, but that's not the starting point. The starting point is leaning into empathy. One other author put it this way, the Bible calls us to weep with those who weep. It doesn't tell us to judge whether they should be weeping. And so if I have a person of color who's a brother and sister in Christ or otherwise, and they're weeping because of racism, 
and their experience, I need to weep with them, as opposed to picking and choosing and saying, no, I'm not going to weep with you. I'm not going to bury your burden here, because I don't think racism is a thing. Can I please see the menu again of burdens and let me select which ones I will choose to bear with you or not? It doesn't work that way. But if we grow in empathy, isn't it the case as well that we are becoming more like Jesus? No empathy from Jesus, no cross, no cross, no salvation for us. The book of Hebrews in a couple different passages, speaks deeply of the empathy of Jesus and how it relates to the grace and the salvation amazing that we receive from him. Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Or Hebrews chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. If you're a follower of Jesus, you should love the cross. The only way of salvation, back to God, this is it. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, offering a sacrifice for our sins. The mercy seat is open still, like Joanna was talking about earlier. Come to this Jesus and know life forever and eternal with him. And then be like Jesus. Be like Jesus in the world. And let empathy take you to a deeper point of repentance related to racism. In the middle of the passage, Galatians chapter 6, Paul says, For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. None of us are above it. None of us are above it. Am I deceiving myself, saying, I have no issues, I have no problems here? And again, if we resist, at the very beginning of this sermon series, I talked about my dad and how for a number of years when I was growing up, Whenever there was talk about how there are inequalities in our, in our world, and our nation, I would be resistant because my dad was a self-made person. And I got defensive thinking, are you telling me that my dad didn't earn and have everything that he clawed his whole life to get? Then I realized it's not a zero-sum game as we talk about these things. And we're also relativized by the gospel. In another place, Paul the Apostle says, what do you have that you have not received? What do you have in your life that you have not received? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Maybe we can grow in empathy and grace and repentance about these things. And as I consider oppression and injustice, both choices and structures, they're really important. Choices are important. And I think overall for the church, whether majority church or minority church, We've been pretty good about saying, make good choices, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, whether you're at the top of the ladder or the bottom of the ladder, no matter the, the color of your skin. Make good choices. And one of the ways in which I'll distance myself from some aspects of the political left is that sometimes I feel like choices don't matter, and it's only about the structures, and even our choices are sublimated into those larger patterns. To me, that's going too far. But then there's a flip side. I'm reading another fiction book right now by an author named Zadie Smith. It's called Swing Time, and at the beginning of the, of the novel, she's talking about 
the experience growing up of two black girls in London. And at one point, one of the mothers tells the girls as they're processing poverty and race in 1980s London, she put it this way to these little kids. People are not poor because they've made bad choices, my mother liked to say. They made, they made bad choices because they're poor. People are not poor because they've made bad choices, my mother liked to say. They make bad choices because they're poor. So, yes, oversimplification and language that children can understand, but I think there's, there's a kernel of truth there for sure where we get and need to that if you're at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder, it's simply the case, and we should lament this and have empathy, that your optionality, the range of choices before you, are pretty limited, and it's so much harder to make good choices because of structures that are on top of us. The Bible is aware of these things. First sermon on a Sunday morning in the series, Psalm 9420, where God judges and critiques those who frame injustice by statute. Or go to the beginning of the book of Exodus, before the plagues, where Moses talks to the enslaved Israelites and proclaims the word of God to them, but Exodus notes that the people did not receive the word of God because of their harsh slavery. It made it so much more difficult. And so we realize and understand these things. And it's worth asking the question, We should all look in the mirror, all of us, and say, is it I? Is it me? Is there some racism in me that I need to reckon with? We need to be vigilant about these things, verse 4 of Galatians 6. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. I would encourage you to do things like sign up, or don't sign up, we're not doing sign-ups this Saturday. Just show up for the workshop that we're doing on Saturday morning, ask around, and probably we need to do some repenting as part of this process. I'm not a priest, it's between you and God, but it would feel a little bit like a fail to me if after this series is over in Lent, I'd be talking to another pastor and that pastor would ask me, Jim, how'd that Lenten series on racism and systemic injustice go? If I would say back to this other pastor, it went great. And the really good news is that nobody in our congregation had to repent of anything as it related to racism. I don't think that other pastor would have said, well, the Holy Spirit obviously is doing a great work in your church right now. Are we above these things and needing to grow? And let's help each other. Paul says at the beginning of the passage, brothers or brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So let's move from empathy to repentance. And likewise, let's move as well. Let's journey from corporate remorse to responsibility. This is an important question, a pressing one. Can I, can we repent of sins that we didn't commit that are either in the past or sins of other people? Can I or can we repent of others or past sins? Some biblical moorings are here. Systemic injustice, Psalm 9420, is a thing, and there are instances, especially in the Old Testament of corporate guilt and corporate confession. 
But here's how I'm continuing to process these things. Can I repent myself, personally, of sins committed by other people or in the past? My answer, frankly, is maybe not. I'm not sure it works that way. But, and this is a very important but, we should allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives as we continue to engage the scriptures so that our personal empathy and personal repentance moves us towards corporate remorse and corporate responsibility. Those are steps that I think we can and should take. What does corporate remorse and responsibility look like? It means that corporately we acknowledge and own and repudiate sins of the past. We say, those things happened, we acknowledge it, we own it, and that's not us. Entire denominations are doing stuff like this. The Southern Baptist Convention, for example, here in our country, the SBC, the Southern Baptist Church, the convention, was founded and racism was a plank, enslavement was a plank. The Civil War right before that, there was one Baptist Church denomination in our country, but as the Civil War gained steam, the question within the Southern Baptist Church was, is slaveholding, is enslavement a sin? Northern Church was leaning no. Southern Church was leaning yes. And the question was, can you be an enslaver and hold office, be a pastor or an elder in the Baptist Church? And that became a proxy referendum on enslavement more generally. The majority Northern Church said, no, we're not okay with that. And then the Southern Baptist Convention says, well, we will become then the Southern Baptist Convention and do it our way. Fast forward 130 years. The middle of the 1990s, the Southern Baptist Convention, as a denomination, put out a statement finally repudiating and acknowledging that part of their heritage, not repudiating everything about what God had done for good in their denomination, because there was plenty of that, but that aspect saying, yes, that was us and that was wrong. As, di as discussions were going in the SBC then and later on, there were some people that thought, do we really need to take that step that was so far in the past? Why are we still talking about these things? But the majority, and it's a majority white denomination, said, yes, we need to acknowledge and we need to own it. It's necessary for us because those sins were so deep in the past and we're not convinced at the same time that they're only in the past. Fast forward from the 1990s to this year. This has been in church news a little bit. There's a black Southern Baptist pastor in Texas named Dwight McKissick who continues to wrestle with dynamics of race within that denomination. And McKissick says, I'm not sure I can stay. But then this letter was sent to him, and it went a little bit viral by another white Christian. And these are deep waters. I'll give that disclaimer, but this is what the letter said, copied to a couple different other people. For the Negro, nothing is ever enough. They remain savages. They defile and diminish every area in which they parade. Academic, political, corporate, judicial, military, athletic. Seeking another white bastion, to badger and beleaguer, they invaded the church. Resources of wisdom are beyond the Negro's capacities. Like two-year-olds, they only know how to whine and throw tantrums. 
that's shocking. It makes you want to give up. It makes you want to despair that a Christian in good standing in his local church in 2021 said something like that. And as you continue to process these things, you may be wrestling and wondering, like, yeah, why are we still talking about these things? And of course, like, I'm not there with that horrible letter that was sent to Dwight McKissick. And I would say, it's awesome that you're not there, but in addition, your brothers and sisters of color need to hear you say that. They need to hear you say it. We need to take corporate responsibility as we grow in to doing things like fighting the silence. Mark Rogup from the Weep With Me book put it this way, silence can become a passive weapon of superiority. And it's no coincidence. It's been written about the quiet exodus in churches in our country where mixed ethnicity churches or majority culture churches, people of color have been leaving over the past few years in record numbers because they're feeling, we're not safe here. We're not being protected. People aren't getting it. And I understand, too, that I said at the beginning of the service, I'm feeling the weight of this sermon series. I mentioned to Emily a couple of weeks ago, it'll be nice after Lent when I can preach on some other stuff in the Bible. But even in the same breath when I said that, I understood that because I'm a majority culture Christian, I am free to disengage these subjects. I am free to engage and disengage these conversations whenever I want. Our minority brothers and sisters, culture, don't have that freedom. So what remorse, what responsibility can we take? What are we able to leverage? Biblical righteousness, I said at the beginning of the sermon series, Bruce Waltke, famous Old Testament scholar, said, if you want to be righteous, that means you disadvantage yourself for the advantage of others. How, with great vigilance, can we leverage whatever resources, whatever capital we have, for the sake of others? Think about it. As I should have done all those years ago in Alexandria, Louisiana. But within our family, in our town, in our church, in our school, in our community, what can we leverage? Been talking about these things on the podcast Post-Sunday Blues, a preaching post-mortem. Tune in, if, if you haven't already. It's on our Liberty Collingswood podcast feed, where we're going through these things again, week by week. And John Travis, with his permission, I wanted to tell you that original Liberty Collingswood launch team member wrote in to postsundayblues at gmail.com with some really good stuff, including a couple of practical suggestions. And Katie is our online host. Katie, please go ahead and drop a couple of specific. There's a podcast and a book that John recommended, specifically as it relates to education. And whether you are in public school or homeschool or private school or parochial school, John says, go ahead, get educated, and get involved. Learn and use your voice for justice and reconciliation in these fears, whatever you have, you have more what you have, more than you think you have, and your voice carries weight. Use it. And in so doing, once again, we become more like Jesus. I know it's a cliche, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit more in the preaching postmortem this coming week, but it's a, it's a cliche for pastors to end their sermons with theological Latin. And that's what I'm going to do once again. The Pactum Salutis. 
the covenant of redemption, the pact, the agreement, the council of redemption, salutis, where theologians throughout the ages have considered the story of salvation in the scriptures and have envisioned the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where the Son of God, God the Son, who became Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago, voluntarily took upon himself responsibility for the plight of others. And he told the Father in the Council of Redemption, in the power of the Holy Spirit, I am voluntarily going to take responsibility for this plight, and I am going to do something about it. Brothers and sisters, we are called to do likewise. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.